Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a Senate committee has voted down the government's controversial Bill C-48. Alberta Senator Paula Simons gives us the lowdown of what happened. Also, the Competition Bureau says the path to lower prices for cell phone plans lies in more competition. Plus, the Phoenix pay system continues to be a giant costly mess and is still causing paycheck havoc for federal government employees. We don't often see evidence of it these days, folks, but appears as though it is actually possible for common sense to prevail in our nation's capital. Yesterday represents a step closer to a much-deserved demise for Ottawa's Bill C-48, which is ostensibly a West Coast tanker ban. What it really is, though, is an oil export ban. Because it doesn't ban all tankers. It certainly doesn't ban all ships from this uh, ostensibly, supposedly pristine uh, coastline. It doesn't apply to the North Coast or the East Coast. So it's not really a tanker ban. And, And furthermore, it's not even really necessary in the first place. If the government is bringing forward legislation to ensure that the review of any major project is held to high environmental standards that we don't need C-48. So a lot of concerns and a lot of problems with C-48. So it's pretty encouraging, somewhat surprising to see yesterday the Senate Committee on Transport and Communication vote down the bill. Not vote to amend the bill, but vote it down altogether. Now, that doesn't mean the bill is dead. Uh, The Senate as a whole may say things otherwise, but it was still pretty significant. Our next guest played a key role in all of this, and it was somewhat dismaying to see some of the uh, comments being made on social media last night that Alberta Senator Paula Simons was voting for this bill, that Alberta Senator Paula Simons was abstaining from the vote on this bill. As As it was, it was Paula Simons who cast the deciding vote in voting down Bill C-48 before this committee. So joining us to talk a bit more about what happened yesterday, where this all goes from here, is the aforementioned Alberta Senator Paula Simon. Senator, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It is always my pleasure, Rob Breckenridge. Well, certainly your time in, in Ottawa has been anything but dull. These are some pretty significant developments regarding C-48. First of all, I know C-69 has been discussed today. Uh, I mean, C-48 isn't dead yet, but uh, the, the vote yesterday no. by the committee was to, to stop it in its tracks. So what does that mean? Well, it's the question about what it means sort of symbolically and politically and what it means practically. It's very, very unusual for a Senate committee not to report a bill, not to turn a bill back over to the Senate with a recommendation to proceed. Uh, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but let's just say it's pretty rare. And I didn't cast that vote lightly. It was a decision I agonized over. But I decided that I had a constitutional obligation to defend my region from what I think is an ill-conceived piece of legislation that is prejudicial to Alberta and doesn't actually get the job done in terms of protecting the B.C. coast and the rights of Indigenous nations in British Columbia. So, with it wasn't with joy that I cast this vote. I was really hoping that in committee we would get some amendments to C-48 that would make it a better bill. None of the amendments that I wanted to see, none of the critical ones, passed. And so, at the end of the day, you know, it was, it was, a, bit, it was a bit of drama, 
to the extent that Canadian politics provides drama, because alphabetical order meant I was the last person to cast the vote, and I was, you know, uh, sort of the swing vote on the committee, I guess. Yeah. And when and when I uh, when I voted no, I, I don't know who was more shocked: the conservative whip sitting across from <laughs> me, uh, or some of my independent Senate colleagues. I set a cat amongst the pigeons. Yes, that's one way of putting it. But it, but it is interesting, and, and you, you raised the point when the transport minister was bo- before the committee as to why we need C-48. If, if we have C-69 or a version of C-69 that, that really strengthens the review process, takes into consideration environmental concerns, that whatever concern might arise in the future around a, an environmentally sensitive area of coastline, be it on the West Coast, the East Coast, the North Coast, that C-69 would address that. Why do we need C-48? Did, did you ever get a sufficient answer to that question? No, because I think the answer is a political one. We, You know, the government brought C-48 as uh, a symbolic act of reconciliation with West Coast First Nations. The trouble is that not all West Coast First Nations appreciated the gesture. The Niska First Nation in particular, which is at the far north of British Columbia, uh, was vehemently opposed to C-69, uh, sorry, pardon me, to C-48, mm-hmm. because they felt that it should be up to them to decide whether they can have a deep water port. It should be up to them to decide, you know, whether to welcome a pipeline across their lands. And they didn't think, they thought it was paternalistic for the government to short-circuit that debate and discussion. And other First Nations along the coast were very divided. They have a real problem, which really emerged. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't known about this because I'm from Alberta. But there is a huge problem on that coastline because there is no rapid response capability for dealing with spills. And right now, they're still suffering from spills, not from big oil tankers, but from, you know, cargo ships, tugboats, ferries. They've had a couple of really quite devastating spills, and there's no capacity there to do the cleanup. The C-48, to me, held open a a false promise because it wasn't going to stop American oil tankers from transiting uh, on the other side of Haida Gwaii. Indeed, it wasn't clear that it was going to stop oil tankers from transiting through the, the Inland Strait and the Hecate Strait. So all it did was stop people from picking up loads of heavy oil and, and persistent oil from ports. Now, again, it's largely symbolic. There are no ports currently exporting uh oil from from those areas and there frankly there are no pipelines in the works right so you had you had two kinds of symbolism at war you had this promise made to first nations which wasn't frankly going to deliver them what they actually need which is environmental cleanup capacity right now and at the same time you were frankly giving the middle finger to alberta and you know given given the the mood in alberta right now i just thought it would be a dereliction of my duty as a senator to vote in favor of this bill. It, 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 does, it doesn't kill it. The Senate can still bring it back. The government can still pass it. But I wanted to send a strong message that said, one, I'm an independent senator. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a liberal. I looked at the facts. I looked at the evidence. And I made up my mind, not because of pressure from industry or pressure from conservative senators or pressure from the liberal government, but because I, I did what I thought was the logical response to an illogical piece of legislation. Right. Well, and, and yeah. And, and now and, I'm jaywalking. So if I oh, my goodness. On live radio, that would be very exciting. <laughs> uh, well, that would be terrible. Um, one of the, the, as you say, there, there's no 
project officially on the table, but there is a proposed pipeline project it's called the Eagle Spirit Pipeline, which is uh, indigenous-led, Spirit, right? It's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've had conversations with a lot of the Eagle Spirit proponents, yeah. and the, the messaging from them is quite mixed. I mean, Eagle Spirit at this point is a really interesting idea, and, and for listeners who don't know, it's uh, a plan for a largely First Nations-owned and controlled energy corridor, which might be for pipelines or for high-voltage power lines. And the idea is that then instead of arguing over each expansion, you'd have a particular area where the First Nations along the way were generally in agreement. Mm -hmm. And then there's some question, where would that Eagle Spirit project end up? And maybe it would be north of Prince Rupert in the territory of the Lakskalam First Nation. But the Lakskalam are deeply divided between the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs, they're not sure that they want the pipeline. And I'm not sure that Eagle Spirit has access to the capital right now to make their plan a go. So Eagle Spirit is an interesting idea, and it's fantastic to see First Nations exercising their agency in this way and saying, we don't want to be you know, treated paternalistically. We want to be masters of our own destiny. I think that's a huge step forward. But Eagle Spirit... Is a plan on a drawing board right now. It's yeah. not a. It's not a. It's not shoveled in the ground by any stretch of the imagination. Well, sure, and, and like any other proposed project, I mean, it should have to to pass rigor. But I, I think the concern is that C forty eight, as written, would basically stop it dead in its tracks. Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. And so, you know, for me, the more important bill right now is C sixty nine. We have to get that right. It's actually real legislation uh, that could have lasting consequences for not just the energy sector, but for infrastructure all across Canada. And so to me, if we get C-69 right, it means that any port, any pipeline, any new rail line uh, would have to go through a rigorous environmental assessment. And so this doesn't mean, I mean, if C-48 were to die on the order paper, say, it wouldn't mean that the BC Post is suddenly at huge risk of, of oil tanker traffic. You know, any new port, any new uh, pipeline or a rail line to ship bitumen would be subject to a vigorous impact assessment, and that's as it should be. So once C-69, uh, today then, uh, you're going through these, these proposed amendments. Yes, indeed, and this morning, Ottawa time, early, very this morning, Calgary time, uh, our Energy and Environment Committee, which has been quite divided, came up with a compromise, and we passed pretty much all the amendments. And uh, and we're now going to be reporting the bill to the Senate. So this is the opposite of what happened on C-48, where there was no compromise and we didn't report any bill. In this case, everybody had to give a little. Everybody actually had to give a lot. And uh, we've come up with a package of amendments for the government to consider. They won't accept the ball. I don't think they should accept them all. There's some amendments in that package that I vehemently disagree with. But the point is that we got the bill out of committee where it had sort of been stalled by political infighting. And so this was the compromise. They got it out the door and headed to the Senate and then headed in turn to the House of Commons after third reading. So that's likely to go back to the House. It's still possible that C-48 will as well. Yes. I mean, C-48, the government now has the option. I mean, our committee has given its recommendation. Um, the Senate may well not accept that recommendation. The Senate is pretty divided about C-48 because I have to tell you, I'm not 
the lone ranger here. There are lots of senators, not from Alberta, um, who independent senators who are deeply troubled by C-48. I mean, we know that, you know, my independent colleagues, Doug Black and Elaine McCoy, don't favor the bill, but there are also senators from Ontario, from Nova Scotia. I mean, people who are not conservatives with large C's or small C's, Mm -hmm. people who are smart, smart, progressive public policy thinkers who don't think C-48 is the answer. So I don't know what's going to happen to C-48 in the Senate. I did what I felt I had to do, both morally and legally and pragmatically as an Alberta senator. Uh, and I put a fork in it temporarily, but um, it, it could still be resurrected, absolutely. So, you know, I should neither be condemned or lionized for killing the bill because <laughs> all I did was trip it a bit. Well, let's just say we appreciate your due diligence on these matters, uh, Senator, and we appreciate you making some time for us here today to talk about all of this. Well, and I really appreciate always, Rob, that you give me the chance because on social media, I was being uh, roasted last night for things I had not done, for things I had not said. And so it is wonderful that I get the chance to speak directly to your listeners. Um, They can judge for themselves. It's a win-win, we could call it. (laughs) Senator Paula Simons, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Take care, Bob. All right, there you go. Alberta Senator Paula Simons on what happened yesterday with C-48, also what happened today with Bill C-69 and the Senate Committee approving these amendments. Well, it's been complaints for a long time that when it comes to uh, cell phone service in Canada, when it comes to wireless service, there's just not enough competition in Canada. And what appears, though, compared to other countries, that the Canadians do pay more for these monthly packages. So what, what is the connection between the two? the amount of competition that exists, and the prices that we pay. The CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, is examining this issue. So this review is happening, the review of of the affordability of wireless service in Canada. Uh, The Competition Bureau of Canada uh, has presented to the CRTC, and obviously this is something that the Competition Bureau of Canada keeps a close eye on. Back uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, Bell took over MTS, Manitoba Telecom Services. And so part of the job that the Competition Bureau does is to, to look into a deal like that, a transaction like that, and, and to study the impact. So when it comes to the amount of competition that exists in Canada, certainly the Competition Bureau has a lot of insight. So some interesting findings uh, that they have presented to the CRTC in terms of where we see competition in Canada, where maybe we don't see as much, and the difference that can have. Joining us on the line to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Laura Sonley, Senior Competition Law Officer with the Competition Bureau of Canada. Laura, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot for having me. That was a great overview. Well, I appreciate that. And, and uh, so let's let's build upon that then. So uh, we do have examples then in, in Canada where obviously we've got the, the big three, Bell, Rogers, and, and TELUS. But th- there are parts of Canada where there are still strong regional players then. That's right. Yeah. So in our submission, we talked about um, the provinces that have a strong regional competitor. So, um, you know, Quebec in video with the carrier Videotron, Saskatchewan with SaskTel, and Manitoba with formerly MTS and now ExploreNet. Uh, and so those those three provinces are, are like all the others in that they have TELUS, Rogers, and, and Bell to varying degrees, right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So the difference, I think, is that they have a, an additional competitor that's been able to bring down prices in those markets. Um, it, it may be true in other provinces that there's a carrier that's bringing down prices. The the problem being that we don't have the data right now to, to sort that out. So, for example, in Alberta, uh, you do have freedom mm-hmm. in, in a few cities, right? So I think in Edmonton, Calgary, and recently Red Deer. Um, so that's, that's an open question and uh, something that we have a pending data request with the CRTC to answer. Um, so that we can't really speak to at this stage, but it does seem that at least in some provinces there is an impact from a fourth competitor. What seems to be the impact then if we're, we're looking at, at average prices? Yeah, so um, I think it, it's an interesting phenomenon that you see that um, in those provinces you're seeing lower prices, uh, but, but depending on the metric that you're looking at, it might be lost because usage is also quite a bit higher when you have low prices. Um, so it's sort of a double-edged sword that you're seeing. So both usage uh, and price are, having, are being impacted. But if we try to compare apples to apples, like say a typical uh, 10 gigabyte plan, mm-hmm. do, do we see price differences? That's right. Yeah. So there's there's significant price differences. Um, we talk about a few of them in our submission uh, and give some examples, but the price differences can can be quite significant, above forty percent. And so that that's that you think attributable to having that fourth competitor because maybe there's other differences when it comes to to the network itself or or demographics in these provinces. But did you see that that it probably then boils down to to having this fourth competitor? Yeah, that's right. So we, we did test whether there were other explanations for the pattern. So things like, you know, is there a network quality difference um, that's explaining the difference? So are networks, you know, poorer or stronger in certain provinces? And then so that's dictating the difference in price because you're getting a different product. Um, or are the demographics different or things like that? And uh, the only uh, factor that we saw that explained the differences or, you know, had a consistent explanation for those differences in price seemed to be the presence of a strong regional competitor. What, what then would those regional competitors be bringing to the table that, that's not otherwise there? I mean, theoretically, we still have the big three competing against each other. What, what's unique then about having a, a regional player in the mix? Yeah, so our finding in Bell MTS, the the merger review that you referenced, was that um, there's coordination, price coordination, that's disrupted when you have a different carrier that's that's able to bring something to the table. So um, that seems to be the explanation for why they do some, they you know bring a different presence than would the big three. When you say price coordination, what are you suggesting that? amongst the big three there's price coordination that's right but just to be clear price coordination and you know something like price fixing they're they're different okay um, thing yeah so uh for price uh fixing there would be some sort of a uh, an agreement that's actually been reached and that would be illegal uh price coordination is a bit of a different thing and and fair enough that um not everybody's familiar with that term it's you know we're there's quite a few economists around here so it's it's a bit of a common term here but uh it just means that carriers are are closely following and reacting to each other's pricing um, and and are able to uh, kind of soften competition by doing so. Right. So there's maybe not, not a, a desire to rock the boat, that, that company A sees what company B is, is offering and they basically match that, right? Yeah, that's As opposed exactly, to starting a, right. a price war or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So um, our submission um, is speaking about, you know, that, phenomenon, but also maybe sort of a framework that the CRTC can use to look at um, the path forward. 
Right, and, and so this would suggest maybe the path forward involves some kind of, of approach to encouraging more competition. Is, is that needed? Yeah, I think um, what we've said in our submission is, is that that is needed. Um, the open question is what is needed. So this is the first uh, uh, intervention period, so there'll be a number of other submissions that are filed. So in October, there's a second round of submissions. In January, there's a hearing. So there's more to come on you know, what's the appropriate way to stimulate competition in this market and bring lower prices for consumers. Um, but in our initial submission, we're just sort of laying down the framework. Here are your options. Here's the strengths and weaknesses of, of the different things that you could look at um, as the CRTC, since they're, you know, it's their process and they're the decision maker here. Um, and then more to come in October and January. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it, it is a challenging industry because of all the infrastructure that's required to, to offer, um, you know, certainly and to be a national player, uh, that, that that can be difficult in encouraging other companies to come in and, and start up. So what, what are the possible options we have when it comes to, to getting more competition? Yeah, so one of the options that's been put on the table um, by the CRTC in the when they launched this proceeding is potentially something called mandated MVNO access, which would basically be um, some sort of a resale regime. Um, the details are still being discussed and whether that's the best approach is being discussed, but that's one idea. So it would be that um, Bell, Rogers, and TELUS would have to sell access to their networks to um, carriers that could enter the market and use their network uh, to offer services. Um, so that's one option. There's some other options like, for example, making it easier for customers to switch. There's a number of different ways you can you can reduce those um, those things that are preventing competition, which we call switching costs. Um, there's some other measures that you could consider as well, but those are a couple of them. All right. Uh, more at competitionbureau.gc.ca. Laura, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. That is uh, Laura Sonley, uh, Senior Competition Law Officer of the Competition Bureau of Canada, talking about their presentation to the CRTC as it studies the landscape in this country. And they're arguing that more competition is needed and that in parts of Canada where you still have that additional competition, consumers are benefiting. So Canada's parliamentary budget officer has taken a closer look at the mess that is the Phoenix pay system. The cost of trying to fix the Phoenix pay system. And it's not a pretty picture. The Parliamentary Budget Office says buying a new computer system for public servants' pay, testing it, and training people to use it should cost about $57 million over six years. But the PBO says much depends on the complexity of the new system and whether it will work any better than the current one. And that's on top of the $2.6 billion the PBO estimates it'll cost to stabilize Phoenix and correct the data that's currently being used to calculate government worker paychecks. The PBO also predicts it'll cost upwards of $106 million annually to operate a new pay system. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So why is it so hard to design a system to pay employees of the government? Now, where do we go from here? Because we keep pumping more money into this, trying to sustain Phoenix, trying to find ways of fixing the Phoenix Bay system. Uh, is it time to just cut our losses and, and switch to something new? Joining us uh, for some reaction to this report today, uh, Marianne Haldun joins us, uh, PSAC Regional Executive Vice President for the Prairie Region. Marianne, thank you for joining us here. Oh, thanks so much for the invite. So, I mean, anything in this report surprise you? Uh, no, I would say there's nothing in there that surprised us. Um, I, I just want to go back to what you just said about cut our losses. 
I just want to let people know the consequences of this pay system. Uh, We have nothing else to go to. Mm -hmm. And here you are working for the federal government. And every second Monday, you are crossing your fingers and your toes, checking your pay stub to see if you got paid today. How many workers in this country have to go through that? We don't have an option to cut losses. There's nothing else to go to. Right now, we have hundreds of thousands of people who don't know if they're going to have money to pay their mortgage this month. Uh, I mean, it's it's absolutely appalling. Um, taxpayers should be outraged. But these are real people that are being impacted. Absolutely real families that have to make really tough decisions. So, okay, so let's talk about the idea then of replacing Phoenix, which, as the parliamentary budget officer says, would be a much more affordable option. But it's kind of hypothetical at the moment then, isn't it, that we don't have a system that we can just easily switch over to? Absolutely. I mean, that's what got us into this mess, because uh, the former federal government decided to buy a system off the shelf that couldn't accommodate all of the different um, working, you know, the, the different terms for, for workers, right? Shift workers, I mean, Coast Guard people are on a ship for 28 days, allowances, all of that stuff. The system was not uh, purchased that would be able to accommodate all of those different payrolls. So it was doomed at that point. Uh, and even though we told them it wasn't ready, uh, the program was implemented in 2016. We are in a bit of a catch-22 because they are looking at a new system. Honestly, I think, you know, in talking to employees, uh, we just don't know if how hard they're working on this. Uh, is it a priority for them? It's just almost become the norm that, you know, while we're working on it, that's the response we get. Um, but there's there's nothing else to go back to. So for now, the the thing is they are looking at a new system. They say they're going to do all the testing and all this other stuff to make sure it works. But if you put garbage into the new system, you're not going to be any further ahead. Uh, at the root of all this is the fact that they fired, you know, 1,500 compensation advisors across the country before they implemented Phoenix. These were the folks that could sit down with a pad of paper and a calculator and tell you what you owed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're gone. That expertise is gone. The system can't tell you this stuff. Um, so they need to reinvest in people who actually are HR professionals uh, that can do that. Relying simply on a computer system is not going to get us any further ahead. Was or is going back to the old system an option or was it ever an option? Well, they, they decommissioned the program. Uh, this is what they told us from day one. Um, as soon as they went over to Phoenix, instead of maintaining parallel systems, like a lot of computer experts will tell you is the appropriate thing to do, uh, they decommissioned it. And so when everything started blowing up in Phoenix, the reality is you can't just go back to the old system because you don't have good data to try dump back into the system. It's, It's really this whole chicken and the egg thing, right? At the end of it all, somebody needs to go through every single employee's file and say, okay, you owe us money or we owe you money because people don't even know anymore. 
People yeah. don't know if they've been phoenixed um, because they can't even read their pay stubs. Well, and, and that's an important point in all of this. And for people to try to understand what that's like for thousands of Canadians who are just doing their job every day, you get your paycheck, you don't know if it's accurate, you don't know if you've been underpaid or overpaid. In some cases, maybe it's obvious if you were paid at all. And that is happening week after week after week, month after month, year after year. It's it, it's it's crazy. Well, you know, and the thing is that the pay center has tried to uh, ensure that you get your base salary. So your your regular biweekly salary. Um, and so there's some people that literally get a zero paycheck randomly uh, for no reason, um, you know. Russian roulette is what some of the employees are calling it. Um, and so you just don't know. You could, like, and how many people could actually survive through that? You know, are, are you one paycheck away um, that all of a sudden, hey, you just didn't get your paycheck? But the other problem is, you know, people are refusing to take promotions. They're refusing to change jobs that that might work better for them and their family. They're refusing to act in positions because they don't want to take the chance that that's going to spark something in Phoenix. Or, on the other hand, they have done that, but they're not getting paid. I mean, I just talked to somebody uh just just got an email from somebody that has been at another department, took a promotion eight months ago, is still being paid by the old department at the old pay rate. That means these folks are not spending their money in the community. So when people say, well, you know, government workers, they're not spending money in the community. You're not looking at buying a new vehicle. You're not looking at buying a new house. You're not sending your kids to camp. You're not going on that vacation. You're not going up to the movie or ordering pizza. And what we thought would be a short-term fix, we're now into year four. And the PBO was saying it's going to be 2023 before a new system is in place. What about for those who, who have been nearing retirement? What does that mean for them? Oh, it's it's been uh, it's been horrible for them because so so pensions are dealt with at a different center, uh, and that center is working properly and really efficiently and effectively, but they need the information from the Phoenix Pay Center, and so what they've had to do, what I understand they're doing is is basically presuming what someone's pension should be based on the position that they're in. Uh, and once Phoenix is stabilized, you know, they may have to do adjustments. Uh, but we've had people that have been waiting two, three years to retire, uh, hoping to be able to do that. And, you know, holding off thinking, well, I'll just wait until Phoenix gets, gets fixed. Uh, so now, you know, they, we've had to negotiate a fix, basically, so that employees can retire uh, with at least the minimum of what they're owed. Um, but, you know, there's folks that have not gotten, you know, there's payouts that you're entitled to, whether it's uh, severance pay or vacation leave payout. Well, they've gone like two years and they're not getting that. So this report today doesn't change anything. I mean, it, it helps to illustrate the problem, but uh, it the problem continues. What, what, what does the government need to do going forward here? 
You know, I, I think they really need to acknowledge the fact um, that a computer system cannot replace professionals in the workplace. Um, that's one of the things now, some of the fixes that they've done around Phoenix has been to, to hire compensation advisors and open up some satellite centers. Uh, they need to commit to making that work. And, you know, saying I'm sorry is just not good enough. Um, you know, just recently we've been negotiating damages with the federal government and their offer of five days of vacation leave for four years of not knowing if you're going to get paid, uh, for not getting paid, for getting overpaid, for having your taxes screwed up, for losing child tax benefit, um, you know, all of the things that go into the mental anguish around this. I mean, I literally, I cannot stress, I cannot tell you the number of times I have been in tears talking to our members, like literal tears, listening to their stories, to the stress they're going through, and for the government to say, well, here's five days vacation, like, you know, enjoy it. That's a slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, they need to take this seriously. And I don't, I don't think they are the standard phrase of we're working on it, we're doing our best, we understand. It's not good enough. No, it's not. Well, Marianne, we appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Anytime. Right, Thank take you. Uh, Marianne Haldun, uh, PSAC, Regional Executive Vice President for the Prairie Region. So her thoughts on this report today from the Parliamentary Budget Officer and what they're continuing to deal with. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.